Welcome along to 20 Minute Topic. I'm Marcus Stead and I'm joined as ever by veteran campaigner and blogger Greg Lance Watkins. It's now been two months since Lord Dyson's damning report into the BBC's handling of Martin Bashir in relation to his 1995 Panorama interview with Princess Diana. But now it's all gone quiet again and the BBC is carrying on as though nothing has happened. In this podcast, we ask, can we trust the BBC? What are we to make of its culture of secrecy and lack of transparency? And does the licence fee model have a future? Do stay with us. Well, Greg, in May, we had the story of Martin Bashir and the events surrounding the Panorama interview uh, around about 25 years ago now. And what came out in May is that Martin Bashir created fake bank statements, which led Princess Diana to become unduly suspicious about his staff selling stories to the tabloid press. That was the gist of it. And we had Lord Dyson's report, which I'll come on to in a sec. Princess Diana was likely to give an interview at some point anyway, around about then, about the events that led to her separation and divorce from Prince Charles. The biography by Andrew Morton had already been published, but Bashir's behaviour had got him to the front of the queue in terms of a televised interview. And as with so many things in life, the cover-up is in many ways more important than the story itself. Tony Hall, future BBC Director General, uh, senior in the news department at the time, he was Martin Bashir's superior at that moment. He was singled out in Lord Dyson's report. He doesn't hesitate to call it a cover-up. They're strong words from Lord Dyson, a cover-up. Hall was, I say, head of news and current affairs at the time of the interview. He initially praised Bashir for the interview, You should be very proud of your scoop, he told him in a note. But when doubts emerged about how the interview was secured, Tony Hall presided over an internal review in 1996 that exonerated Bashir of wrongdoing. Its conclusion that Bashir's dealings with Diana were, in the words used, absolutely straight and fair, were not justified, Lord Dyson found. So absolutely straight and fair, Hall's words at the time, Dyson says those words are not justified. And the review at the time by Hall and Anne Sloman, who was the head of the weekly news shows, was, the quote was, based in large part on uncorroborated assertions of Mr. Bashir. This error was compounded by their failure to approach Earl Spencer once they knew that Mr. Bashir had shown the Waller statements to him. Dyson said that when Bashir admitted lying over the bank statements, this should have set alarm bells ringing in their ears, but it did not. Tony Hall was also found to be guarded and misleading in answers to questions from the media about how the interview was secured. He also misled the BBC's board by claiming that the opportunity of interviewing the princess arose. Dyson said this account gave no hint of the controversial way Bashir had secured the interview. But in responding to Dyson's report, Hall, who, let's not forget, was Director General of the BBC until as recently as last summer, said he accepted his inquiry fell well short of what was required and that he was wrong to give Martin Bashir the benefit of the doubt. Now, Greg, what Lord Dyson's report gives us is an insight into how secretive and unaccountable the BBC is. They've tried to defend it by saying it's not the same organisation now that it was 25 years ago. Well, hold on a second. Martin Bashir was working for the BBC as its religion editor until as recently as mid-May, just a matter of days before this all really blew up. 
And as I just said, Tony Hall was director general as recently as last summer. Greg, there's a culture of unaccountability. This has all gone relatively quiet in the weeks since. This culture of secrecy and unaccountability is in itself very, very wrong. I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think I don't watch the BBC. I haven't done for well over 20 years because I don't believe you can trust a word it says. It's propaganda. I think it's uh, assorted uh, smorgasbord of programmes is pretty damned lightweight. There's a cult in the BBC of cronies who are obscenely overpaid, whether that's to read the news or run an interview um, or an interview programme or produce a wildlife programme. The level of pay does not represent the ability or the work done, but this tends to pertain throughout the entertainment industry, whether that's cinema, theatres or sport. Well, Greg, let's, let's focus on the BBC in this context because, look, I'll put my cards on the table. I haven't done any paid work for the BBC since 2008. I've appeared on there as a guest on various outlets in the period since, but I haven't done any paid work for them since 2008. Now, I was interested recently, um, the, the broadcaster Duncan Barks, formerly of BBC London and did some stuff for Five Live in recent years as well. He left the BBC and he put some stuff on Twitter saying uh, it's the most peculiar and downright sinister organisation he's ever seen in his life. And it operates internally in a very, very strange way. And I sensed that when I worked there all those years ago. But in terms of the culture of the place, Andrew Marr, who I don't think is a fool by any stretch of the imagination, um, he said during a speech in 2006, so 15 years ago, and this is a great quote, these are Andrew Marr's words, the BBC is not impartial or neutral. It is a publicly funded urban organisation with an abnormally large number of young people, ethnic minorities and gay people. It has a liberal bias, not so much a party political bias. It is better expressed as a cultural liberal bias. And Greg, I have to say, that is consistent with my own experience there. Oh, I totally agree with you. Um, I um, have been a guest on the BBC in the past, um, but it's not been an enjoyable experience because it's patently obvious that if you don't put forward the party line, you won't be a guest. Mm. And mm. I think the whole of the BBC is corrupt. We only have to look at the fact that Hall was in a position of authority on the Bashir interview. And I have absolutely no doubt personally that he was fully conversant with how that interview was obtained, probably before it was uh, uh, actually obtained. He has never admitted to this, but... He works for the BBC. You wouldn't expect him to be honest, would you? Well, Greg, I know somebody, and I know you know who I'm talking about, who worked in the same sphere as Bashir in the early to mid-1990s, and he made it very clear to me that a large number of fellow journalists and producers refused to work with Bashir. And I'm going back a good five years before the Diana interview. His lack of ethics, Bashir's lack of ethics, 
his lack of standards and his slippery behavior uh, was something that turned off a lot of producers and fellow journalists back then. So for to Tony Hall would have known this, that others in his department didn't want to know Bashir on a professional level. And yet he gave him the benefit of the doubt. This is a quite a significant cover up, isn't it? Um, the one that was significant, but I think probably not as widespread as others that were of more criminal nature. Uh, mm. Let us take Jimmy Savile, for instance. Mm. Everybody knew that he was an absolutely overt pervert. Mm. I doubt there was anyone of any stature in the BBC who didn't know it. Mm. And yet nothing was done about it. Well, that went um, beyond the BBC, didn't it? Yeah, they went beyond the BBC. You, you look at the, the governments, both colours, Conservative and Labour, they knew what Savile was up to as well. Yes, but the governments of both colours are the ones that have condoned the BBC's years of propaganda and dishonesty. Well, what, um, this... I, I hold little brief for the integrity of politicians because I would I, I don't think I'd be far out in saying that between 60 and 70% of the effort any politician puts into his job is to get re-elected. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's the nature of the beast in many cases. But yes. in, terms, in terms of the BBC... is helping them. I have seen at the BBC, and I alluded to it, and I quoted, sort of half-quoted Duncan Barks a minute ago. I, can't, I haven't got the tweet in front of me, but I gave the gist of the tweet. And I quoted Andrew Marr word for word from 2006. I'm now going to quote somebody no longer with us who I did have quite a bit of time for, actually. And that's the former newsreader and former Question Time host, Peter Sissons. Uh, and his autobiography is a very, very good read, actually, When One Door Closes, it's called. And he, a, a, a short excerpt on the BBC culture and BBC bias. Um, and I'll read it now. Whatever the United Nations is associated with is good. It is heresy to question any of its activities. The EU is also a good thing, but not quite as good as the UN. Soaking the rich is good, despite well-founded economic arguments that the more you tax, the less you get. And government spending is a good thing, although most BBC people prefer to call it investment, in line with new Labour terminology. All green and environmental groups are very good things. Al Gore is a saint. George Bush was a bad thing and thick to the bargain. Obama was not just the Democratic Party's candidate for the White House, he was the BBC's. Blair was good, Brown bad, but the BBC has now lost interest in both. Trade unions are mostly good things, especially when they are fighting BBC managers. Quangos are also mostly good. The reports they produce are usually handled uncritically. The royal family is a bore. Islam must not be offended at any price, although Christians are fair game because they do nothing about it if they are offended. Now, that's just a short excerpt. Peter Sisson's um, who, who sadly left us about 18 months, two years ago, I think, he goes into a lot more depth in his book of the culture of the place and the things he experienced. But that mindset, you know, when you combine that with what I said a moment or so ago about Andrew Marr and the quote he gave, there is this sort of urban, liberal, metropolitan mindset that penetrates every area of the BBC. And this goes well beyond news output. This is something I, I think is at, the core, is at the core of the problem, don't you? Oh, without a doubt. This is just another side of the coin which Christopher Booker so aptly put his finger on when he talked of the fact that Britain 
is sinking into a neo-Marxist fog. Mm. Mm. I don't see this as anything separate to that. Mm. I think mm. that these institutions that have got their feet firmly under the table are inviolable for the simple reason that anybody who tells the truth about them is either no platformed or overtly attacked. Well, Christopher, While they continue with their with their paedophilia and pederasty, their obscene salaries, and their standard ripoff of the taxpayer, because nobody has a choice as to whether they fund the BBC. It ah. is a tax. Uh, hang on, I think this this is an interesting aspect of the discussion because to me, uh, first of all, I'm going to address what you said about Christopher Booker because he's a good example. Now, Christopher was very much a part of the 1960s satire boom, working with David Frost and the gang on That Was The Week That Was. But Christopher wrote, not that many years ago, actually, um, about BBC bias as it was in those days. It was more subtle then than it is now. But what he said was what they would typically do is if they were having like a studio discussion about any topic, the person that favoured the BBC side of the argument would be bright, articulate, and able to communicate well on television. The side of the argument the BBC was against would be represented by some humorless bore. And that was a tactic they used a lot, even in the 60s when Christopher was working there. But beyond that, I think the BBC is trading on a reputation it had decades ago in the days, um, you know, when you'd have high quality news and current affairs and documentaries and high quality sitcoms and family entertainment, top notch sports coverage. It's still trading off a reputation it had decades ago. Now I feel, Greg, looking at an average schedule on BBC One these days, in the evenings, you have the odd hour of high quality drama, but a lot of it, whether it's the one show, whether it's these sort of makeover shows, it's sort of um, daytime television drifting into the evening is what an average evening on BBC One now is. That's largely to do with budget cuts and the, the lack of the, the audience fragmentation, meaning it's harder to get mass audiences. But it does feel like BBC One now is daytime television drifting into the evening. If you look at the average evening schedule with the odd hour of drama thrown in here and there. Now, you talked about the business model. I think the license fee model is in big trouble. Now, I've got, I suppose I don't want to sound pompous about this. I think I speak with a little bit of authority because back in 2004, 2005, I wrote a first class dissertation on the future of the BBC license fee. And I thought it was in trouble then. But what's changed in the years since, particularly the last decade, is streaming services. And Greg, people, particularly the under 30s, but increasingly over 30s, are consuming entertainment on their terms via streaming services like Netflix and Amazon Prime and things like that. Even the things I'm enjoying at the moment, my favorite non-sports thing on TV at the moment is Clarkson's Farm. That's an Amazon Prime original. Now, Greg, we, I, we're talking hundreds of thousands of people every year are concluding they don't need a TV license because this is how they now consume their entertainment. Older people are increasingly catching up with this. If you're over 75 and you're not particularly well off, you also get a free TV license, means tested. What I'm getting at is, Greg, year on year, the license fee model as we know it is in trouble. You just said due to budget cuts. Hmm. What, Nick Robinson on 275,000 a year? Misha Hussain, has anybody heard of him? 280,000 a year. Martha Kearney, 255,000 a year. 
World at One, Sarah Montague, 250,000 year. Evan Davis, 275,000 year. Emily Matris, 330,000 year. Kirsty mm. Walk, 215. Need I go on? They've had budget cuts. Where the hell are they? Well, no, what, 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 what you're saying, what you're saying there is correct. And yes, we, we've all seen the list of obscene salaries. But what I'm referring to, when I was a kid, there was BBC One, there was BBC Two. There was radios one, two, three, and four, a network of local stations. And that was pretty much it. Now, the same pot of money in the modern sphere also has to fund the BBC website, Radio 5 Live Sports Extra, 6 Music, Radio 4 Extra, um, the Asian Network, um, BBC 4, BBC News Channel. That same pot of money has to be spread much more thinly. And that is affecting what we see on primetime BBC One. That's the point I was making. Yeah, true. But Marcus... It doesn't do any of them well. No. Except its people. Yeah. Now, something I want to touch on in the time we got left is value judgments. And I've talked about the institutional bias at the BBC and the sort of goldfish bowl of people they employ. But why do they choose certain stories over others? I think this affects their judgment in terms of news values in a bad way. I'll give a very basic example. The police treatment of black criminals in the United States, undoubtedly serious, but why do they tell us a huge amount more about that than they do, say, Pakistani grooming gangs in Britain? They make a value judgment when they choose to cover police brutality in the United States over grooming gangs in Britain. And people ask me why I don't watch the BBC. Yeah. I actually want to get the news, not the BBC's spin. Mm. You're not allowed to tell the truth about Muslims. Mm. You actually run a protection racket for them. Or is it fear or is it political correctness? It's political correctness. Yeah. Because the BBC has nothing to fear on these salaries. If yeah, it, it becomes difficult, they'll, they'll just hire people as front men and pay them a huge amount of money. Well, this links to what I just said a few moments ago about Peter Sissons, about uh, the quote he gave saying that they uh, Islam must not be offended at any cost. Um, yeah. but, but Christians carry on you know you see these trendy comedians making vulgar comments about christianity they get off scot-free every time it seems to me yeah i wonder if some of these foul-mouthed comedians they put on these panel shows they made an equivalent remark about islam there's absolutely no way it would be broadcast so you know the bbc makes these sorts of judgments all the time however greg we haven't really got much time for this what i want to say now and i'm afraid i'm going to have to ask you to keep it brief but in terms of very, very broadly, if you would, please, in future public service broadcasting, what model do you think it should take? And should there be a compulsory tax of any sort for the sort of things that would struggle to survive in the commercial sector? Or should we just let the market decide? Where do you think we should head on this? There should be no tax of any description on anybody for watching what other people are producing to attract an audience. Mm. The BBC would earn itself excellent money if it turned out excellent programmes. And I'm sorry, in periods of austerity, to see that Gary Lineker took a 22% pay drop last year and walked away with 1.36 million, and Zoe Ball took a 17% drop and walked away with 1.13 million. This is just taking the mickey. 
Well, yes, yes, it is. But um, you gave two examples there, Zoe Ball and her pay. But she, since she took over the Radio 2 breakfast show from Chris Evans, she's lost a million listeners. And Gary Lineker, the job he does is the equivalent job to what Mark Pugach does for ITV or David Jones does for Sky or Jay Humphrey does for BT Sport. He anchors football coverage. There's any number of sports broadcasters that can and do do that same job for a fraction of the money. You cannot say that this is an appropriate use of license fee payers' money. But Greg, as ever, I'm afraid to say time has beaten us. We've barely scratched the surface on this, but I think we've gone some way to explaining the lack of accountability and the lack of transparency at the BBC. We've also articulated how it's going to struggle in the future as its license fee model becomes obsolete as people find alternative ways of consuming entertainment. But thank you very much for listening. As always, we'll see you again next time. 